Welcome to Missionary Roundtable with your host, Kale Horvath. Welcome back to Missionary Roundtable. My name is Kale Horvath. I'm a pastor and missionary, and I'm your host. Excited to have you guys back again. This is the podcast where we discuss the Great Commission and international missions and everything around and surrounding the strategy that we can have and our practice and our life in regards to the Great Commission that the Lord has given us with reaching the nations for the gospel. And so I'm glad to have you guys back this summer. We are continuing our conversation with pastors and missionaries about the Great Commission. And today I'm excited to have on again for the second time, my friend and pastor Jeff Bartell. Hey, how you doing? Hey man, great to have you. Um, Jeff was on the very first season of Missionary Roundtable. If you haven't listened to the first season, you need to go do that after you listen to this one. Jeff was actually in the very first episode, so you can go back and find season one, episode one. The episode was called Preparing for the Field, and Jeff did a great job of just laying out like, it was like 10 or 15 practical things you can do if you want to be a missionary, things you can do right now to start preparing your life for the field. It was a great episode. Um, Pastor Jeff was a missionary to Albania, for 14 years, um, he was, he is, well, he was, I'll say that, we'll get to that in a minute, the former senior pastor of First Baptist Church. Uh, that probably sounds weird to you, Jeff. Um, it really does. Uh, so, yeah, I was the, yeah, okay. I was the former senior pastor. Okay, we'll, we'll clarify. Uh, So, yeah, he's recently transitioned to a new role uh, role, uh, at First Baptist. He didn't leave First Baptist Church. Um, Would you like to elaborate on that? Is that okay? Well, while we're here, I mean, it's not that big a deal. But uh, again, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. But absolutely. um, Yeah. So 14 years church planning missionary in Albania, um, 12 and a half years senior pastor here at First Baptist in New Philadelphia, Ohio. And uh, just last month. Um, made the transition, handing over the leadership senior pastor position uh, to Troy Stogsdale, who's our was our executive pastor and very very capable to take the lead of this church now. Because um, we together for years have prayerfully considered when the timing and opportunity might be right for me to be able to step aside from that role, so I could dedicate more time specifically and solely towards missions and education, Christian education. So my new role is specifically being the missions pastor. Um, We have a a lot of missionary endeavors that we're involved in. Um, Having recently sent UKL, obviously, to Hungary, we recently started a church in central Ohio. We've got a lot of other guys about ready to finish our Bible Institute. That requires a lot of time. So Mm -hmm. dedicate more time to the training and sending of families to start new works in new places. That's my new job title. Um, I'm just barely getting started now. So how do you summer, what, what's the title? <laughs> Associate just, pastor of missions and yeah, just, Bible uh, college. Pastor of yeah, missions and education. And and um it, I guess maybe it gives you a little bit more time to do your other favorite job as the host of Theology Roundtable, the very prominent <laughs> right. and popular podcast. It is. <laughs> which it's this oddly, is a spin-off. It's oddly on. popular. <laughs> yeah. It's oddly popular. Yeah, in a, right. in a yeah. niche. We never anticipated. Yeah, in a niche conservative theological audience way, it's a it's actually a popular podcast. Praise the Lord. Yeah, so we've been going two years. Yeah, and, that's crazy. Uh, at the end of the first year, we had roughly fifty thousand downloads, and thought that was just amazing. Uh, at the end of the second year, we're totaled. Do we just pass the 150,000 downloads? <laughs> so like year two doubled yeah. download numbers over year one. And, uh, you know, all 50 states have had at least one download and 50 plus countries around the world. And mm-hmm. um, we get regular listener mail saying that they're interested or disagree sometimes with yeah. things that we talk about. But we have a lot of fun, and uh, it is it has been it has been a lot of fun to do that, and never anticipated um, the widespread listenership that that we have. Yeah, no, I yeah, I don't think, yeah, I I don't know what we anticipated going into it, but I I just always knew that like so I don't know if I've ever said this on this podcast, but I I knew that it would be a good idea to do something like that because when 
when uh, I was younger and in the college age ministry, probably 20 or 21, when Jeff would have, um, I'm talking to the audience now. That's why I called you Jeff. You know, got it. it. You don't, you know, I'm not talking the third person in Hungary here. If you're going to be very polite and formal, you actually speak uh, to them. We, we have a, a, a formal version where you actually just speak in the third person to them, which is very strange. So if you want to be polite, you talk to someone as if they're not there. Uh, there's a random tidbit about Hungarian. <laughs> so you just, hey, you know, uh, yeah. Jeff. Um, but when uh, I was younger and Jeff would have a guest preacher missionary into the church, he would have them over on Sunday night to his house and just uh, have them talk. And he would invite the college kids over and and just listen and ask questions about missions or, or whatever those guys were into. And uh, honestly, half of the fun of that was just being a fly on the wall of the conversation between you and whoever that guest was. And so kind of the idea was like, man, if we could make that, fabricate that, you know, into a podcast to where the audience that environment, yeah. right, was just a fly on the wall um, to listen to you know, you and Troy and, and Brett talk about theology. And that was kind of my idea with the missionary podcast thing too. With the, So this is a spinoff of Theology Roundtable. Yeah. Was just have missionaries and pastors talk about the field in a candid way that maybe sometimes, and I mean, sometimes missionaries don't feel like they can be that candid because they're worried about support and whatnot. Sometimes, you know, justifiably yeah. so sometimes. Um, and so hopefully you guys have benefited through that listening to this. Today, I want to talk to Pastor Jeff, um, kind of springboarding from our first conversation in the last season when we talked about preparing for the field. You told a few stories about, you know, you kind of landing on the field. Um, but really, I, I want to talk about just how does one plant a church when they go to the field? And specifically in this context, foreign mission field, but, you know, um, certainly there are right. uh, domestic church plants as well. Um but let's just do it in story form, Jeff. When, when you first landed on the field, you were 30 years old, you had several years of training and experience at your church in ministry, um, you were single, and you landed in post-communistic Albania. Right. What was that like? Uh, well, it was crazy. <laughs> um, it, everything that had to do with the circumstances of my moving to Albania. 1992 was the year, and it was like December of 91 when the country first opened their borders, like the last of the Eastern Bloc European communist countries to open up to the West. Mm -hmm. um, everything about the circumstances of me going permanently and landing in Albania as a bachelor in August of 92 um, goes against all the principles that we typically would <laughs> set as parameters and filters and standards, you know, for sending somebody out. Like my situation was just very unique. And, um, so for example, I went on this trip for a two week mission trip just to see what God was doing with my pastor and a few other men in early July of 92. And while I was on my two week mission trip, felt like, you know, this was the time God was calling me to stay there permanently. And my pastor was with me, so I did get to consult with him and share with him what I thought God was doing, and he agreed. But typically, as a pastor, I think if a young man is on a mission trip and his emotions are high and he's just caught up in the excitement of it all and says, God's called me to stay here, <laughs> my typical response would be, yeah, no, sorry. Um, we're yeah, going to go home and pray about 90s. it for a while. <laughs> Those crazy 90s. Yeah, you were 30. Um, yeah, okay, go ahead. You know, and I was, <laughs> I was not maybe my pastor's favorite guy in the church, you know, <laughs> let's just let him out go. <laughs> We're going to have a win-win situation. We could send a missionary. We get Jeff gone. If it works, we get credit for it. If it bombs, we could kind of say we knew he was a loser yeah. anyway. No, I'm kind of, I'm kind of kidding. Kind of kidding, right? But, uh, no, I mean, it, it really was a unique situation, and, and sure. I felt like God was doing something. I actually had been preparing and praying for that for years, and he knew that. Mm -hmm. and I had finished the training available to me, and he knew that. And um, I just thought the timing was right, and, and he agreed. And so I went home. I was on my two-week vacation from work. I was working at the time at a chemical plant as an engineer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went back and quit my job. And within about four or five weeks, I had sold whatever stuff I owned. And, uh, and was on my way back with a one-way ticket. And so here I am landing alone, something, again, you wouldn't typically do. You wouldn't send in a single individual without a family, without a mission board, without a mission team, without an existing 
national pastor or someone somewhere on the ground to receive him. Um, I, I was what I've sometimes referred to as kind of the cash equivalent of, you know, being helicopter dropped in the jungle. Like, here you go. <laughs> I didn't speak the language. I didn't, well, in I didn't really know. Anything. Arriving at the Tirana airport in the 1990s might've been like being helicopter dropped into a jungle. <laughs> right. Right. It was kind of crazy. And so without going into a lot of those details, it, it was, it was, it was super hard and the country was very, very poor and there was very little available. Like I can legitimately say, this is a great claim to fame for me. So everybody listening, you ready? Um, I arrived in Albania before Coca-Cola. Wow. So, there you, you go. know, I dare you to, I dare you to find a place in the world that you can get to that Coca-Cola hadn't got to yet. <laughs> so for example, I arrived before Coca-Cola when I first got there. Uh, really, there was it was just becoming quote unquote capitalistic and open. There's no real private enterprise. So sure. there was still people waiting in line for bread and stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was that was tough. And uh so you know I I ended up I lived in a children's orphanage for a short period of time and then I got I rented a room from an Albanian family um who didn't speak any English and I was studying the language and stuff like that. And we'll get into the actual church planning stuff in a well, minute. But I, basically, know, a, lo- a lot of these challenges were mm-hmm. surrounded around just trying to survive by myself in a new environment, not being able to talk to anybody. Sure. Well, and so so all of that, you know, all the all things considered, the emotions of just leaving, you know, your family, your friends, your church and going to a foreign field, not being able to understand anything. I can I can identify uh oddly yeah. enough. Um but yeah. you know, did you feel overwhelmed just with this idea that there's there's this giant nebulous uh, amount of things that I need to accomplish, things that need to get done? Of course, not things that can be done immediately, but where do you start? Where, you know, I mean, do you just feel overwhelmed with, should oh. I start this or start on that? Or Oh, it was ridiculously overwhelming. And so um, the, the interesting thing about the Albanian phenomena, if I'll call it that, you know, the evangelism in early post-communist Albania was that the, the people were so closed off to the rest of the world, they were actually very curious about anything that came from the outside world. Because I was one of the first, I, w- I would say this, I was among the first wave of foreigners to enter the country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just having a foreign looking face drew attention and interest. And the Albanian people are very kind and hospitable and all that. And Mm -hmm. so literally just started immediately getting involved in ministry with a translator. And we maybe joked about this in the previous year's podcast. I don't remember. I've told the story a million times, but my translator ultimately became my wife. So this pretty young girl that was a college student translated for me, I hired her and ultimately married her. So (laughs) anyway, she would go with me and we would, you know, do ministry and of course, I would just be speaking English. We literally just not, went up and down these um, government-owned, you know, communist country government-owned apartment blocks, mm-hmm. and up and down the stairwells and knocking on doors and asking them, you know, if we could share the gospel. I mean, I didn't even have to come up with some corny way to try and share the gospel because they were so curious about any foreigner finally showing up in their country. When one knocked on their door, they were so excited to see me. They were like, "Please come into my uh-huh. house." And wait for a second. I'm going to call all my cousins first or whatever. And then I'd go sit in their house. And, of course, they're super hospitable. They'd bring you, you know, something to eat or drink or whatever, just a, a snack, a plate of fruit, a Coca-Cola. What, yeah. Well, not a Coca-Cola. Not a Coca-Cola. There, but whatever they had. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, and then they would say, tell us something about the outside world. <laughs> right. And I would be like, well, that's very interesting because I actually came here to tell you something. Yeah. You know, whatever. And a I'd share the gospel. from the Lord. <laughs> right. Yeah, literally. And so it was kind of a, it, because of, it really was all about timing. But uh, I, I just was in the right place at the right time. Mm, now, in awesome. order to be at the right place at the right time in history for that country and that people, it meant that I had to have been willing right. to relocate under those extreme circumstances sure. alone. You know, and aligning yourself with the will of God and the plan of God in your life so that you would be sensitive to him moving you to where he was working. Yeah. And so it was a very unusual. In fact, I'd say you're probably hard pressed to find another place like it in the world today. I mean, not like I'm an expert or anything, but to find a place where you could just walk in and there's there's just curiosity and Mm -hmm. hunger 
about anything new and you can leverage that for the gospel, <clears throat> that definitely was in our advantage, those of us that arrived early on. Would you couldn't do if, that today in if Albania. Like, yeah, I, maybe this is an extreme example, but like like if North Korea all of a sudden communism fell and opened up, like yeah. w- would it uh, have been that extreme feeling for the Albanians back then? Yeah, in fact, that's actually a great example. I, I've always said, in fact, North Korea is one of the countries that I really pray for. I, mm-hmm. I probably will never go. Um, but North Korea would be the Asian mirror image counterpart of what Eastern European Albania used to be during all those years of the Cold War and all that kind of stuff. And so as closed off as North Korea is and whatever the audience has studied or knows anything about North Korea, Mm -hmm. it's a larger country. It's, you know, it's a stronger military country and that stuff. But Albania is also a small country. Um, But as closed as North Korea is, is how closed Albania was. And so the people on the inside of North Korea today probably have very similar, very limited contact with anybody on the outside, if at all. Mm -hmm. And so if and when that border ever opens, then the most logical missionary force would be South Korea. Sure. Right? Very Christianized nation who already understand the culture and language. They could just go in. Um, But so that's what I pray for. But that's actually a really good comparison. That's how Albania used mm. to be. What was it like, um, the spiritual state of Albania back then? Uh, like, obviously, um, uh, so, so we had uh, your brother-in-law, Arion, on a, uh, an episode this season. Um, I don't know if yeah. it aired before or after this, but in this season of Missionary Roundtable, we have Arion, who's a, a native Albanian, and he speaks a little bit to this. But, but for you as an American going into that, um, just as an atheistic nation, uh, what was that like? Um, yeah, so it was a very, um, it was a very spiritually dark situation. And um, the people came out of a, a real atheism. Like they didn't, they didn't believe anything. They were, they were trained to be um, Darwinist, you know, Marxists. Mm-hmm. And so anybody who considered themselves intellectual, um, you had to be an atheist. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, tried to consider anything else, that was just considered a crutch and a weakness of mind. Um, yet on the other hand, the younger generation, the college kids and whatnot, the high school kids, and that was the population, the demographic that was open to and interested in hearing mm. the gospel, <clears throat> hearing something new, a uh, little more progressive thinkers, younger, thinking about change, thinking about the new things, not always just necessarily believing, you know, what the older generation trained them all their lives or whatever. Yeah. So we found the, 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 the good soil for the seed of the word of God, mostly in the high school and college students, mm. uh, because they were interested in something new and, and something that, you know, would have been from the outside world that might be different. And so, um, again, Albanians are very hospitable, so you could get an audience and, and people would politely listen. Mm-hmm. And, and some might even like, if you were, if you were the type of evangelist that pushed for a salvation prayer on the spot, I mean, you could get them to do it, mm-hmm. but did they really understand? Sure, sure. Um, and I'm not trying to advocate for or against that method. I mean, let the Lord lead you. I'm just saying that there was a lot of people that prayed prayers with us that really never understood what they were doing. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of people that did pray prayers with us after hearing the gospel just one time Wow. that legitimately got saved, one of which is my wife. Yeah. She heard it once, she got saved. Some of the, some of the guys who are now pastors in Albania they heard the gospel one time. They believed it and they got saved. They didn't need to hear it 25 times. Yeah. I mean, it just depends. But because there was just a curiosity and an, I mean, so in one hand, the advantage of this atheism was that they, they weren't ingrained in some existing um, religious tradition that was false. Mm-hmm. Like you didn't have to deprogram out, you know, the false teachings of Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy or Islam or Buddhism or whatever it might be. They were a blank slate. Hmm. And so dependent upon 
their individual will and willingness to consider eternal things. I know that for my wife, her story of salvation, she got saved the very first day on our little two-week visit. She was translating for my pastor who shared the gospel with her on that very first day. And by virtue of the fact that she spoke English, you know, and she was working for us, you know, he shared the gospel with her and she received it. But her story in a nutshell basically goes like this, is that when she recognized that there was something available that was eternal and free, that she thought, well, eternal and free, those are really good. Like, (laughs) I want that, you know, I'm not turning that down. Hmm. Like, I'm not going to have to be asked twice. That's I'm going awesome. for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there was a lot of people in that in that category. And so there was so much interest. It was real easy for me on one hand. The circum like I could tell my story. The circumstances of life were very difficult in those early years. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the beginnings of ministry were very easy because there was if somebody rejected you, it was no problem because there was 10 more interested in hearing. Wow. You just moved on. Mm-hmm. And that there was so many people responding that then to try and assemble some schedule of follow-up and discipleship, well, that just kept me busy. This all started from a question you asked me, did I feel overwhelmed? Mm-hmm. Well, I felt overwhelmed because self-imposed problem here, but you know, I kind of felt myself as though I had the weight of the world on me, like all this nation of people, small little country, but still 3 million people or so all this nation of people, um, like they're going to hell and I, and I, I need to get the gospel to them. And if I don't hurry and get the gospel to them, it's going to be too late. Like, sure. And sure. so I felt this pressure and I, and I had this open door, literally open doors one after another in apartment complexes. <laughs> yeah. I worked day and night and day and night and day and night. Wow. I go home to an apartment with a family that didn't speak a lick of English. And I kept trying to study and learn the language as I was going. And I'd go to bed every night with a headache and get up in the morning and do it again. And I'd walk everywhere. I didn't have a car at that time. And right. Anyway. They probably didn't have say, good public transportation yet either, huh? Not really, no. I, so I did a lot of walking, lost a lot of weight. Um, <laughs> but at the time, um, I just worked myself to death. And after about six months of doing it, um, literally, I got, I got sick. And I, I kind of collapsed from something. I don't know wow. what it was. I. I typically just refer to it now. This is not a you know, legitimate medical diagnosis. It's just my recollection of what happened. But I just consider it like some kind of a, a severe chronic fatigue syndrome. Like I was just so fatigued. I could only walk like 20 yards at the mm-hmm. most. And I'd have to sit down again and, get, and take, a, take a rest. As a 30-year-old. And I ultimately, I ultimately needed to take like two weeks. There was another missionary family that was doing some humanitarian work at an orphanage and the wife was a nurse in the military. They took me into their house and just let me sleep on their couch and feed me soup for like two weeks. (laughs) Wow. So I could recover. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of that was self-imposed and whatnot, but Mm -hmm. there was this huge open door but I, man, I, I internalized it so much and it was so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to go, go, go before it was too late. You know what I mean? And I yeah. probably should have paced myself a little better. <laughs> you know, I didn't really have anybody to coach me through that. So I was just doing yeah. what I could. That's a really good, I'm glad you brought that up though, because so for me, it, it's different. It's, it's not the same in that like you get here and then people are just swarming you, you know, to you know, to hear the gospel, that would be an awesome problem. I wish I had that, but just, uh, in a different way, just so, you know, I have my family here and then it's a, you know, a difficult language. And then I'm trying to meet with people and I just feel the, the, I, I burden myself and I feel overwhelmed sometimes that I can't take time off. You know what I mean? Like I, I have to keep going because there's, there's little old ladies, in America, giving their two mites so that I can be here to get the gospel to these Hungarians and, and praise right. the Lord for that. I actually sincerely you know, <laughs> believe that I do. Um, but, th- but then sometimes I feel like, man, if, can I take time for, for me? And so how, how do you figure, how did you figure that out the hard way as far as how important rest was? Um, well, it, it took way longer than it should have. And 
you know, allow me to step into the role of your pastor now for a second <laughs> and tell you that you really need to, you need to, listen, the, the Old Testament principle of Sabbath is in there for a reason. Hmm. Uh, you need to have regular rest times. And so you can legalistically play that out however you want to weekly <laughs> or whatever, but you have to have, you have to have times of rest scheduled. And I had, I, I, I imposed a lot of the pressure on myself, similar to what you're describing about my finances and whatnot. Like mm -hmm. I refuse. So I, after one year of being in the country, uh, Aaron and I married and, um, got our first apartment and whatnot. And like, I was such an idiot that like, I really resisted like buying nice stuff. You know, I thought back then or, man, or now even back. No, back then. <laughs> I mean, I'm doing better now, you know, but back then, you know, I'm like, man, you know, I studied missiology. You got to live like the people. The people are super poor. We're right, going right. to live super poor mm -hmm. and all this kind of thing. And, and, you know, we needed stuff. And, and I was like, man, this is God's money. I mean, we can't be spending God's money on sure. like a nice couch. I mean, you can't buy a nice couch. You can have a, a junky couch and still have a place to sit mm -hmm. or whatever. I mean, it didn't matter what the detail was. So, and, you know, not taking days off and not taking time off. It really did. It broke me. And, uh, you know, that six month period caused me to realize, look, I need not to be fair in Albania, there wasn't fun things to do. Like there wasn't recreation. The, the country was just suffering. Yeah. So there wasn't yeah. like, it's not like people had good jobs and they had their weekends off and they could go fishing. Sure. I mean, it you know, you sure. just didn't have that stuff available. So, you know, to rest just meant you're just not going to work today. Mm -hmm. You're just going to, you're just going to hang out. So you could go, go to the park you go to the park and yeah. You could sit by a lake or something and read or take a walk or just relax or mm -hmm. something. Very few even restaurants to go to. Like literally it was it was it was a level of, you know, third world development that it was almost unknown in in the continent of Europe anyway. Hmm. And uh anyway, so you know, ultimately I had to create a balance where I recognized that and and by the way eventually this word got back to my pastors and stuff and they were rebuked me <laughs> in love saying, you're an idiot. Take care of your wife, take care of your family, do what you need to do. Keep your, you know, Buy things. the idea is, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you know, the woodsman can't chop down as many trees if he doesn't take time to sharpen the ax, you know, yeah. that story. So yeah. you've got to be able to do that. And, what uh, was, uh, I mean, I remember some stories about your first apartment that you made Erla live in. Uh, wasn't there some detail about uh, the commode and even oh, well, in your kitchen? Kitchen, commode, the whole, yeah, shower, everything about it was. But again, it was it was fairly common depending on, you know, again, these are apartments in, you know, government subsidized housing. Mm -hmm. So there was various levels you know, of facilities, but, a but a sit down ceramic toilet was not common in early Albania. They had what we called the Turkish toilet that you just squat over. Wow. And, and that was common and that was fine. I had to get used to it, but the Albanians sure. were used to it, but that's what the house had. Um, the shower, um, they really took a step up. You know, this apartment had decided to install, um, that fabricated, a big aluminum box and attached it to the wall mm -hmm. so that when the water was on for a couple hours a day, you could fill this big aluminum box on the wall with water and it had an electric heater, you know, like those things you could stick in, they used to have, you could plug in the wall and you stick in your coffee. It's like a little resistance coil, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. or whatever. And it would mm -hmm. heat up something. You just have a little, this was like element. a giant yeah. resistance coil. Like don't be standing barefoot on water when you plug it in or something, you know, <laughs> sure. but so it had this resistance coil and a, and a, and a wire coming out of it that you had to literally plug in a wall. And then, you know, you just have to gauge when you thought the water was hot enough and then unplug it. Yeah. And then you could open up a valve and there would be a little shower head that would drip on your head real slow. And you could kind of take a shower. Mm -hmm. If you left it on too long, it'd be scalded and hot if you know, whatever. There was no hot and cold mixed water of a boiler that, you know, none of that stuff was available. And, right. and there was no kitchen indoors. So we had a, the balcony off of our apartment, um, little narrow 
balcony, you know, mm-hmm. had a sink, little single, like small bat, like what you would consider in like a small bathroom, single little sink. That's mm-hmm. it. And uh, it just had a spigot for cold water. That was it. Wow. But it had a couple of plugs out there. And so we had a little wooden table and a little table top, almost like a toaster oven. It was just like a tiny little oven and like two stove electric eyes on top. Like a hot plate. Well, yeah, like a hot plate kind of. And and like that was it. It was just like a, mm-hmm. a tiny little oven and a hot plate and a cold only tiny sink in the balcony. But, you know, Albania does have winter. <laughs> right. So right, it was cold. Yeah. It was kind of cold. Like, who's doing the dishes tonight, honey? You know, that kind of thing. So how did you um, find the, the balance between that extreme and the extreme of the missionaries who go to the field and live lavishly, like above, you know, Americans even? Well, I just knew that I wasn't going to do that. And and it really it really was the result of what I still to this day consider to have been good training. Mm. Um, you know, I sat under guys like Jeff Adams and people like that, that had a good missionary experience and they would talk about the negative impact to the ministry when Americans would go and set themselves up in these walled palaces and they would have foreigners, the local nationals, serve them as servants. They have drivers, they'd have mm-hmm. shoppers, they'd have translators, they'd have people pay their bills. They'd have people, you know, mm-hmm. because labor is so cheap and they have so much money and all this kind of stuff. And he just taught us why that was so detrimental to you getting involved in the lives and the daily, you know, thing of the people. So I I would never have allowed myself personally sure. to make that kind of a choice for our ministry. Um there, you know, we could go on for a long time about why those are negative things. I, I don't, I don't agree with that mm-hmm. philosophy of living for any missionary. Um, I also don't think you need to live as poor as I did. Um, there's definitely a balance. You, you can definitely, because at, at some point I finally realized that Albanians might've been poor, but that wasn't their choice. They were stuck in the country they were, they were born in. That didn't mean that they were not intelligent, highly intelligent people Mm -hmm. just didn't have opportunities that we had. So these highly intelligent people would view me as a rich Westerner, an American, moving to their country and living such a poor life. They they viewed that like you're you're just a fool. Like (laughs) if I was you, I would live nicer than me. If I had the money you have, I would never live like this. Why would you live like this? You must be stupid. Wow. And so it finally dawned on me, I could live a little nicer and it won't damage the ministry. It'll actually enhance the fact that people have respect for me. Like, well, of course he lives nicer. He's got it available. If I had it available, I'd live that way too. And it would make your wife happy. (laughs) Yeah. And you just have a comfortable place to rest. You know, I, I still never had like a 24 hour generator to kick in anytime the lights went out. When the <laughs> lights went out, they went out at my house. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, I was there for many, many years before we moved into a house that actually had water reserves because for the years I lived in Albania, they never had 24 hour water running. Hmm. Like it was always on for so many hours and off for so many hours. Yeah. But like, you know, you, you learn to live around that schedule, but that didn't mean that we couldn't at some point actually have, mm-hmm nice furniture and an air conditioner or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So, okay. So where, where did you go from there then? You're, uh, you're in the country, you're meeting with people, you're sharing the gospel. Eventually you've got more than you can. How how did you actually go about having your first church service and start discipling your first men? Yeah, we did that right away. So because there was so much interest right away, we just said, um, we, there was a, because I was kind of working in conjunction with this humanitarian group that was working with these orphans, mm-hmm. um, the orphanage that they were working at the place I lived for a few weeks before I found that house. Um, they had a, like a big meeting room, um, in the orphanage and they let me use it oh, for wow. church. So, so, so you started that almost immediately. I started immediately. I just said, look, church on Sunday, come. And so I would preach and Erla would translate and oh, wow. come if they will, you know? And so, so and, that was before you it, had zero knowledge of the language or anything. It's like, okay, I'm going to preach. Oh man, She'll nothing. translate it. 
And yeah, people are coming thing. though at that point. Like crazy. Wow. Like it was crazy. Like I had more people attending church in the first year or two than in years after, because eventually people were like, you know, the early, early time, there's just so much curiosity. Yeah. yeah. We had like 200 people coming. Like mm-hmm. it was crazy. And uh, eventually that whittled down because a lot of those people were just coming to see the American or to hear English sure, or to see if they could ask me if I could help them go to America or get a visa. Or, right, right. Or so there was whatever, curiosity you know. just about the outside world in general. And you were just the about a American. foreigner being in town. Sure. There was some foreigner in town and he's talking at this church. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Well, in the meantime, I'm preaching the gospel yeah, to them. Yeah, of and, course. You know, all that kind of stuff. And so, um, a lot of people did respond and then I would, I would schedule, you know, follow up times for discipleship with anybody who wanted it. And so, uh, there wasn't as many people who would want to be faithful to consistent discipleship. And, and we did a system very similar to what you and I are familiar with, obviously a systematic group of lessons, like 16 different lessons at the time that we used Mm -hmm. to go through a bunch of the fundamentals of the faith. And I would just sit down with him. So you mentioned Arion on the podcast. He was actually my first legitimate disciple. Mm-hmm. Um, he was one of those guys, a young man, curious, that when his curiosity started out at coming from atheism, he had some friends in high school that were, that were starting to go to a Seventh-day Adventist church. And so Arion, back then, Albanians went to school six days a week and only had Sunday off. Wow. But the Seventh-day Adventists, of course, they got to take Saturday off because that's the Sabbath. That's the seventh day, you know. Mm. So Arion, I think he kind of liked it just because he could also, for religious reasons, not go to school on Saturday. So I think he <laughs> liked being able to take two days off. I'm not sure. But he was a smart kid, and he was learning some stuff. And then he met me, and we had a lot of Bible questions back and forth. And ultimately, the Lord got a hold of his heart and showed him that that system wasn't right. And he legitimately got saved, and I started discipling him. Of course, he spoke English, or was his English was pretty good. He's much better now, but anyway, plenty good so that we could study together. Mm -hmm. And it was people like that. There, there became, you know, it got to the point where, you know, I would meet with anybody, but there wasn't a lot of people really interested in really dedicating themselves to study. So, you know, I'd have five or six guys at any given time and that is just the hard keep following thing up is, with them throughout the week. Right. Finding the guys who, cause I've even noticed that since getting here in the, in the short time we've been here is you'll get people who are interested and they want to hear what you have to say. Um, and then it's like, okay, well, would you, know, do you want to study the Bible? Yeah, let's do that sometime. And then maybe even do that one time. And it's like, well, would you like to do this like every week? It's like, well, I'm pretty busy. You know, I, I got school right. or it, so it is, it is right. hard to find the, but, but that's what you're praying for is those, just those handful of guys um, that'll right. be sincere disciples. Right. And the guys that really were getting it early in those early years, you know, it's no surprise. Of course, that's, we're talking back 30 years ago now. I mean, it was the early nineties. Yeah. And so, you know, it's no surprise that those are the guys that today They're the pastors. are pastors of churches, Yeah, sure. pastors and missionaries, you know what I mean? So, that's awesome. you know, it just takes, I mean, ministry just takes time. So you yeah. invest in people like, like raising your kids. I mean, mm-hmm. you're going to raise your kids until they're grown. And then, well, you're still going to be their parents and love them even after they're grown. Yeah. So, you know, those guys got it. They got excited. Um, like I said, it was a unique time in history. It also was to our ministry strategy advantage that the country had nothing else to offer. Like they weren't distracted. Like you're talking about the people that you might meet today. Mm -hmm. Like there wasn't a lot of recreation. There wasn't a lot of financial stimulus offer, you know, offers or opportunities. Um, they were either college students or want to be college students. And, you know, there was just a ton of free time with not much to do. Wow. And yeah. so we're like, Hey, here's something new. And if they were even legitimately kind of interested, well, I might as well, let's, let's go check it out. Let's go talk to the guy. Let's go learn some stuff. Mm. And if you give them something that was real spiritual food and interesting to them, they're like, well, let's do some more of this. Hmm. So we had in the early years, I mean, there was some legitimate spiritual fire and hunger among the people, they were like reading through their Bibles every year, multiple times a year. They were challenging one another to do stuff like that and go witness to their friends and bring them to church. Like, yeah, that's awesome. it took time for the Western world's wealth to make it into Albania to then distract the mm-hmm. Christians away from the Lord. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, to make the world that, that... more like it is that we understand. Right. Know? 
because you're you're right. Living in like Budapest, you know, two million people. There's so many things that you can go do. It, it, you know, right. I mean, it's just in in some aspects, it's just like living in a Western, either Western Europe or an American city. Right. But yeah. So that's really cool. So you you know you start discipling guys. You're already meeting for church on Sundays. When, how long did it take you to feel like, a you're an Albanian, you speak the language like to a point to where you aren't laboring to, to understand and to speak. And you actually felt like you were a pastor of a church. You you know what I mean? Like how long did that take to kind of get everything settled and like, okay, we have this church. It's a fairly, not a mature church, but like we meet every Sunday, we have these things planned. I speak the language I'm preaching in the language. Yeah. Well, let me start with the church thing. I mean, so I, I did the work of a pastor from the very beginning. And mm-hmm. so that just continued the entire time. Um, I probably felt it. If you want to talk about feeling it, it probably took a year or two to really feel like, you know, I'm, I'm the shepherd of this group of people that has now kind of whittled themselves down to those that are a little more serious. Um, Cause it was an infantile it, church for, for a little while. Yeah, for sure. I mean, all baby Christians, I mean, nobody, I was yeah. preaching and, you know, systematically through simple things in the gospels and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all that stuff just to, um, reinforce, you know, who Jesus is and what he came to do and salvation and eternal security and just basic doctrines and simple things on how they can learn to study the Bible for themselves. And they didn't always need to just listen to me because I really wanted to establish the authority of the scriptures in their life. Cause there was an ever growing number of other religions and cults. I mean, it's not like, like I said, the seventh day Adventists and Jehovah's witness, and of course, Catholics and Muslims and every other denomination and all these different, I mean, everybody had some representative mm-hmm. somewhere preaching now. Sure. So, you know, how are you going to keep the people from, I mean, why, why should they listen to me if the other guy's a more skilled orator? Mm-hmm. Well, they should only listen to me if I'm giving them the words of God. So they need to learn how to study that for themselves. Once they started getting into that, you started really feeling like a shepherd, kind of like their spiritual father. Yeah. And that was within the first year or two. Um, and so, by, so, for example, at the end of one year, I could get around town. I could shop. I could do my own stuff in the language, but I still wasn't that good. At the end of the second year... I could do a bunch of stuff in church. I could, you know, I could handle interaction and prayer requests and pray in mm-hmm. Albanian, that kind of thing. But I wasn't preaching because that's harder. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe by the third year, you know, I was doing, so we did like Sundays and Wednesdays. So like I would, I would then switch the, the Wednesday night was more of a deeper Bible study. So less attended, but more serious students. Okay. So the Wednesday night Bible study, I started doing that in Albanian first, because I figured, ah, they're already, they like me. They're into the Bible. They'll be more tolerant if I make mistakes. They're Uh not here to just see Jeff. They're here to actually learn something. So let's get into the word of God and I'll do what I can. Mm -hmm. And if I make mistakes, some of them speak English, they'll correct me and we'll just move on. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll be okay. And it wasn't until about the third into the fourth year, probably by the third year, I was probably capable of handling it all on my own, but I still had, um, so by this time we're having our first baby. And so I kind of retire my wife from translation. Arione was translating. There were some other translators, but by the fourth year, it just, the circumstances worked out that the Lord had kind of saw fit to remove those people from our church. And like the people that spoke good enough English to really translate, um, left. They moved, they relocated, they went somewhere else. Interesting. And so, you know, it was just the Lord reminded me, Hey, look, you're ready. Why, it's time. why are you relying on translators? That's stupid. Just jump out and do it. And so for sure, by the fourth year, I was in full Albanian mode and we really never had any other American missionary team, you know, working with us. There was one family that lived and worked with us for a little while. Um, for a number of years, but they were focused a little more on physical works and stuff like that. Anyway, um, you know, my wife's Albanian. I had an unfair advantage, I say, (laughs) as far as that goes, but we lived our lives like Albanians among Albanians. Sure. I didn't hang out with what was now a growing expat missionary community. They weren't 
my friends. I'm, I, I didn't mean for them not to be my friends, but I just invested my life in the Albanians as sure, my friends. Sure. So, you know, three, four years in, like, I just considered myself one of them. Yeah. I knew I wasn't, but I considered myself one of them. But that's cool. They considered me one of them because that's they knew that. Yeah, they knew that I'd given my life to do that. And obviously I married into the culture and I lived and did, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So you know, on that language in that same vein, I don't know if I've ever asked you this, but I just thought of this while you were talking about it. Um, was it when you started to preach in that fourth year or roundabout then that you started um, or did, when did you start reading the Bible in Albanian? rather than your English Bible. I, I know that there's, you know, you know, historically with the Albanian Bible, there, there were some issues there. There wasn't one immediately. Um, but, but when did you start or did you ever, uh, abandon the English Bible as far as your devotions go? I'm curious. Oh yeah. Yeah. I used to read the Albanian Bible regularly all the time. Um, I will say though, that when I was studying in detail for sermons, I would always study you know, my King James English Bible, mm. just because I knew it was, you know, 100% perfect. Sure. And the, so and, and I would study Albanian it, Bible but I would new, always translation. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would always have the Albanian Bible open next to it. And just to make sure that it didn't have some gross error, Sure. you know, as I was going down the line, mm -hmm. but I consistently read the Albanian Bible and just, you know, worked actively on memorizing scripture in the Albanian Bible mm. so that while you're preaching, you know, some, the Lord just gives you a thought. You may not have had it in your notes. Right. You just want to quote something. Well, you want to quote it right. Yeah. You know, you don't want to just make up some weird American translation in your head translation, <laughs> you know, yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And so, wow, you know, yeah, I, I, I regularly would that. read and study along that line for that reason. But when, when it was like, I'm studying this doctrine to preach it. Mm-hmm. I, I never just singularly studied out of sure. the Albanian Bible without my King James Bible. But when Bible you were just spending your devotional time in the morning or something, would, would you do that in the Albanian Bible eventually? Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, I can't I just wait got till to where... I can get to that point in the language, man. That that seems yeah, no, really that seems impossible it. that you could interact with another language Bible in the way that you did with your heart language. You know, it well, it's really interesting, Kale, and you'll eventually get to this point, I'm sure, but you really can get to the point where your second language becomes your dominant language if mm. you use it enough. Wow. And it can become so dominant that, you know, maybe you've met people that have done this and it seemed hokey to you, but sometimes they'll, these would be like Americans, but they've spent so many years where they're at. Sometimes they'll fight to find the right English word and mm. they'll be like, how do you say that in English? Well, that's not because they're trying to look cool or whatever. <laughs> it's just it's truly because they spend more hours of the day thinking and acting in the other language, in, in the new language, in this other language, and they feel more comfortable doing it. Like wow. people say, you know, there's certain th certain ways you can tell, you can measure certain things like, you know, we, we, Jeff Adams used to teach us, you know, the language is just the key to the culture. The goal isn't to learn the language. The goal is to learn the culture. Mm -hmm. But without the language, you can't get the culture. Sure. Well, the idea is the language just helps you understand for example, Hungarians think the way they think, and I better understand it now because I can tell by the way they structure their sentences. Mm -hmm. I can tell by the way that they use these terms and phrases and these idioms and, you know, these colloquial expressions and all that kind of stuff. When you get all that stuff down and you can use it right, then you start realizing, oh, this is how they think. Yeah. And so when I got to where I could use those kind of daily colloquial street type phraseology in the proper context, like the Albanians were just blown away. Like <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, you're one, you're one of us now. Yeah. Um, but you just start thinking that way and you realize, mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Everything you guys do isn't weird. It isn't wrong. It's just different. Yeah. And maybe I, now maybe I can kind of see why you think Americans are weird or whatever. <laughs> it doesn't even matter. It's just, it's just your point of reference. And so um, that, you know, that then becomes the joy because then you're like, oh, the Lord can actually even, okay, so the Albanian Bible wasn't a perfect translation, but it wasn't horrible. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Sometimes just the way that the Albanian language had certain words available in the vocabulary, well, it helped me to better understand principles I might not have got just in English. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it was just fun. It became, it became a lot of fun to be able to have that comfort level 
you know, if you, people sometimes say, um, have you ever dreamed in Albanian? Mm -hmm. Well, I used to all the time. I don't anymore. Sure. Um, but you, you know, you just have a dream and everything in the dream was yeah. in that language. And you're like, Oh, I, cause that's as natural as anything else. You know what yeah. I mean? Someone asked me that the other day, do you dream in Hungarian yet? And I said, well, yeah, but not the way you're thinking. I, I actually, I dream about, <laughs> uh, I dream about not doing my homework or, or not understanding a word in, in, yeah. in language class. <laughs> oh man. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thanks. Hang Jeff. in there, man. Oh, it'll come. <laughs> yeah. Thanks man. I appreciate it. Uh, so this is good. I want to tie a bow on this. This has been awesome, but there's a question that's kind of out of left field for this conversation, but I've been trying to ask it to everyone I've had on the show this year. Um, 2020 was a crazy year, uh, COVID, the whole, you know, the whole pandemic situation. I kind of already know a little bit of your answer to this question, but I, I want, I want you to, you know, I'll tell see the if I can throw you a curveball. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how has the world events of the last year and going forward, um, if at all, how has it affected your urgency strategy for the great commission or even just your walk with God? Oh yeah, you know my answer to this one for sure. Then, um, yeah. So I've been getting some crazy, really good obviously. answers, though. It's it's been really good yeah, to hear I can't wait from to all hear over the, the world. Episodes. Yeah, I'm sure that'll be fantastic. Um, I I actually am a very you know strong believer in what I consider to be the you know setting in place of the events of the end time, and so you know we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture and pre-millennial return of Jesus Christ and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Anybody who really understands the Bible, I think, would have to agree. I'll just say that out loud. This is theology um, table. Jeff's starting to come out now. Yeah, yeah I can't help it. <laughs> anyway, um, I actually believe that what the Bible does reveal, and when the Bible speaks prophetically, it speaks in generalities. So that's why, you know, for centuries, people try and guess, and nobody guesses exactly right. Mm -hmm. And And I could be accused of being just the next guesser who could be wrong. I get it. But I think there are certain timelines in the scripture, and I think those timelines point to a very near time, date, and coming of the Lord Jesus uh, physically, which then you'd have to have to take away the tribulation prior to that. Sure. Um, I think that certain strategies of how in the world is there going to be this great deception and, and ruling the whole—how could the man of sin step up and rule the whole world? What What is the thing that would— bring the whole world together in a one world socialist governmental structure. Um, and so what I have observed is that, you know, COVID biological weaponry to place fear in the heart of man is, if not the ultimate strategy of the devil to set up the end, it sure is a really good test case. <laughs> And if the devil wanted to use something to test, how effectively could he control, oh yeah, not just Americans or not just a region of the world, the but the entire global population mm -hmm. with one sweeping event? Yeah. Well, COVID sure was a really good test case. Now I'll let the listeners decide, you know, what they've, you, you, you pick for yourself whether you think that this was intentionally man-made and propagated as weaponry or whether it was naturally occurring and the devil just said, Oh, that's handy. I think <laughs> sure. I'll use it or whatever. Yeah. But whatever the case might be, I, I believe that, that we are in the very last days and the very last minutes. Mm -hmm. So therefore all I seem to ever think about and all I seem to ever talk about and conclude messages that I preach about is we have to be, we have to be about our father's business. We have to and I think it's the grace of God. Like, it's all about evangelism to me, like discipleship, of course. But man, we've, we've got to get the last few guys in the boat before it's too late. Mm, amen. And uh, it could be too late any minute. And it could be too late between when we record this today and when you air it. I mean, who knows, yeah, right? It could be that spring, soon. right? Yeah. And so, you know, um, we've, you know, we've just got to, we've got to run to the finish line. And I think it's going to get harder before it gets easier. I think that the, the pressure against the churches, uh, against missions, look, COVID made it almost impossible for anybody to travel internationally. You know how hard it was for you to get into yeah. Hungary, um, Europe, especially it's really hard to send traditional missionaries from the West to the rest of the world anymore and to get a mm -hmm. missionary visa to go there. 
soon enough, I anticipate it'll be hard enough for us to send money internationally to support missions. Could be, yeah. Uh, and then all that's going to be left is just for the devil to come straight up and shut down churches. Mm-hmm. Um, the governmental structures and all these executive orders and all these ways, I mean, there's just so much stuff going on that it's just a matter of time. Whenever the Lord allows and whenever the timing's right, the man of sin can pop up and establish, you know, is the COVID vaccine the mark of the beast? Everybody likes to argue stuff yeah, like sure. that. Well, no, it's not the mark <laughs> of the beast. And it, and so, you know, if you get it or don't get it, according to your conscience, get it or don't get it. I don't care. It's not going to send you to hell if you're saved. You're fine. The mm-hmm. point is, it's a good forerunner. It's a good example of the kind of a thing right. that the devil's getting the world ready for, that the whole world will sign up to take something in the, the fore of their head or their right hand. Yeah, you know In that will be a mark that ultimately, and, yeah, to do anything, right? And right. which and we're already and so, especially in Europe right. right now. There's, I mean, certificates that you have to provide. Yeah, vaccination passports and all that yeah. kind of stuff. It, it's happening, right? It's and so all this stuff is going on, and really sets up the time of the end for me. It sets up the urgency. Like, look, I, I'll be sixty this year, and like, I'm not worried about my four hundred one k, which isn't <laughs> really strong. <laughs> I'm not worried about it. Like we're going to run to the finish line. That's yeah, what we're going to do. Sure. And, um, I had a, I had a health scare here this last month or yeah. so ago. And I, you know, it was a weird little event. It should have been a simple procedure. It turned out that, you know, I had a very dire circumstance. I could have lost my life. They saved my life in the hospital. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Okay. That could have been the end, but it, it wasn't the end. The Lord saw fit that I got time still ahead of me. Well, I say all that to say, for me personally, you asked me the question. It just reinforces to me, man, the time is now. When, you know, when, when the Lord's ready to take me, the Lord will take me. If, it's, if he's not ready to take me, he's not going to take me. Mm-hmm. And nothing else really matters. All that really matters is just to get the gospel out to the nations however we can. We may need to adjust, and this is going to be part of my new job description, to prayerfully consider, at least in the First Baptist Church context, mm-hmm. how can we be as strategic as possible Sure. to help the gospel get around the world if we can't do it in a traditional missionary way, for example. Sure. Uh, maybe in a vocational way, maybe in other ways. Um, that might be an interesting podcast for you. Yeah. But um, so, you know, uh, this is the kind of thing. But there's no question. I've never – oh, I was going to say this, and I'll, and I'll finish. I, I actually believe that this whole deal with COVID in 2020 and now into 2021, um, I think it's the grace of God. I think, I think God's being very gracious – to all of us, giving us what I will consider one last chance. Mm. Uh, we've all been warned. We've all read about prophecy. We all know. So if you're lost, um, the Lord's given you one last chance to get saved. Yeah, if was. you're saved and you've been kind of a deadbeat Christian, the Lord's given you one last chance to finish strong, even though you've wasted a bunch of your mm. years. And if you've been a faithful Christian, well, don't cave now because you're almost to the finish line. <laughs> Amen. And so the Lord's like, man, stock up the rewards, go for it while you, while you can. It's not going to be easy, but mm-hmm. man, you know, read about the rewards to the overcomer in Laodicea, and you'll be glad if you became one of those. Yeah. Um, so I I believe we're at the end, and I think we should run. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good uh, perspective to have, Jeff. Thank you for that. I. Um, I couldn't agree more. For me, it's it's just been about you know even the perspective I've I had maybe not perspective but just the goals I had when when we would arrive on the field before COVID um, have just shifted. Maybe um, I, I'm I, I man I am praying. I, it would be really cool to see like you know a giant revival in Hungary. But just given what I believe about the Bible, like you said, and what we're seeing in the world today, I'm just I'm kind of just praying for the gleanings. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I don't yeah. know. I actually don't know if I will become fluent in this language before the Lord comes back. So what can I do? Sure. It kind of leads to, okay, what do you, what is your theology about the end times in the Bible? How does that affect your practice? And, uh, yeah. and so, yeah, that's really good. Thanks, man. I appreciate yeah, the whole everything you occupy said. Occupy till I come. You can do that. You know, just do whatever yeah. you can until that day. That's out of your control. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, that's man. Awesome. It's been great. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, there you go. Another episode with Pastor Jeff Bartell. Always great 
getting to talk to him. Of course, he's, you know, my pastor and, and mentor over the years, but it's always great just to hear from experienced missionaries and pastors, their perspective on different things, and just even being able to learn from their story and and uh, what they came through and how they went about doing things. And so it was very interesting just to hear about how uh, things were culturally and uh, and even spiritually when he landed on the field in Albania. So I hope you guys learned something, um, especially, you know, there at the end where Jeff was urging us all um, to have a sense of urgency um, to, one, if you're not saved, to get saved while there's still time, but two, um, if you haven't been doing what God wants you to do, there's only so much time left, and, and God, it does seem God is being gracious and kind of letting us know, hey, there's not much time left. We need to be about our Father's business, y'all. We need to be doing what we're supposed to be doing. So make sure you're doing that. Be involved in global evangelism in the Great Commission, and let's see if we can bring in the gleanings before the the Lord comes and calls the church home. Thank you guys so much for listening this week. I hope to see you back here next week, same time, same place. We'll have another guest on here talking about the Great Commission. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time. God bless. Thanks for listening. Please rate and subscribe and share us on social media. Also, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Theology Roundtable, at theologyroundtable.com.